Today, I have a special conversation for you. It is with Tom Shaughnessy of Delphi Digital. They're an independent research firm in the digital assets, cryptocurrency space. We had a chance to talk about how Delphi Digital, number one, called the bottom of Bitcoin, which is pretty awesome. Uh, how he researches cryptocurrencies, because that is something he literally does on a daily basis, both for, for retail investors, as well as primarily for institutional investors. And what are institutional investors actually interested in? And we dive into a lot more. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. So let's hop into it. Let's kick things off with the concept of, of what you do at Delphi Digital an independent research firm. I don't think that's something that a lot of people in in cryptocurrency are are familiar with. What exactly are you and the team at Delphi Digital doing as an independent research firm? Yeah, well, Bobby, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So basically, what we do is pretty simple. We're all ex equity research, ex finance, Wall Street guys. Uh, we all came together with the goal of bringing institutional level quality research to the crypto space. Uh, we saw that it was lacking. We wanted to bring that caliber of analysis and research and depth um, into the space because, frankly, uh, we were looking for it and we couldn't find it. Awesome. And one of the, I think, really cool things about what you guys are doing is you're kind of catering it or almost allowing the adoption for for two different sides of the house. Like I myself have a Delphi membership, which is pretty cool. But then you also have like the institutional kind of research. Can you talk a little bit about of how you maybe approach the market from a research standpoint by, I think what's really interesting is allowing kind of the average Joe to get the quality research that you put out while also catering towards maybe the more quote unquote sophisticated investors. Yeah, well, thanks for being a member, Bobby. Appreciate having you on. So basically we figured out that there's, there's two tiers to research. Uh, there's the retail tier and that's fine. Uh, people that are investigating, investing on their own. Um, they want quality research at a great price point, And that's what we offer. So our research tier has a lot of great content in it. You know, we put out really in-depth uh, thought pieces that we call insights that are not so much educational, but, you know, analysis heavy every two weeks. Uh, we just did it on ZK Snarks. Uh, my partner, Medeo and Neil did one on gaming prior to that. Uh, we also include things like a weekly commentary and our proprietary Bitcoin outlook. Um, and, my partner, Kevin, as I just mentioned, our weekly commentary there and a couple other things. But on the other side of that, we have our institutional offering, which has all those things. But we release the you know analysis heavy token reports to that user base. Um, and that user base is primarily crypto hedge funds, venture funds, banks and firms that are looking for basically what they're used to from the sell side research shops of the world. Awesome. And going to the point where you said, you know, you do the the Bitlook or Bitcoin Outlook report, two things I think we can bring up here. So number one, there was in I think this was you know one of your one of your partners at Delphi uh, published this, but in December, essentially called the Bitcoin bottom with his uh, UTXO analysis on Bitcoin and said, you know, we believe the bottom will be in, or we have indications that the bottom will be in in Q1 of 2019. And then again, in early April, uh, kind of restated, we continue to believe that the bottom is in. When you're evaluating these types in, of kind of scenarios and doing this research, like what type of what type of information are you guys taking in to kind of draw those conclusions and, and how have you done so so effectively so far at this point? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, every research report we do has a different set of sources. Uh, so if we want to start with token reports, that 
depends on the project we're covering. Sure. So we recently wrote an institutional report on Stellar. Um, I didn't think it had value going in. We concluded that it, you know, there's no reason to own the token whatsoever. But for a token that's in the top 10 and for so many institutional investors and index funds to hold it, it was just blowing my mind that people didn't, uh, you know, understand that this thing will likely never have value at all. And there's no reason it should here, uh, in my opinion, obviously not financial advice. But the point is every token project is different. Uh, in traditional equity research world, you know, you'll start with 10 Qs and 10 Ks and annual reports and earnings and conference calls. And, you know, you have your slate of where to begin. Uh, in crypto, every token report is different. So we need to check the founders. We need to check the website, the foundation. Uh, is there a white paper, a purple paper, a yellow paper? Uh, all the sources are, are really different. And to be honest, that keeps it fun and interesting. Uh, but it also creates a lot of headaches on, you know, is this, are these statistics legit? Um, are these sources credible? Uh, can we actually run with this uh, full time? So, you know, that's kind of the the push and pull on on how we get our research. But you know, a lot of it is you know spending hours among all of ourselves uh, compiling all the data we can, uh, figuring out what's important, and then figuring out what to uh, exclude. You know, between the guys when we write a report, it's always annoying to. Uh, you know, see one of your slides cut out of the report, but we have to keep it uh, pointed uh, for our readers, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and as like an independent research firm, I would assume that, you know, you're doing your best to kind of like remove any biases out of out of the situation and, and provide the highest quality content that you can. Um, so like, let's let's take the, the stellar, you know, report, for example, you said that was an institutional report, I personally haven't haven't seen that. But it sounds like the main conclusion from the stellar report was that you know, it might not be a it might not be, according to the research, something worth an institution actually taking ownership in the XLM token. Um, how do you go about that research? Like, you know, maybe from, like you said, looking at the white paper, like once you've once you've gone about that research, actually, like, like, let's say, how did you determine that this wasn't something that were, you know, was maybe an appropriate investment for someone? Was there uh, you know, specific aspects or points to that where you were looking at where it was like, maybe it was the inflation rate, or if it was the you know, kind of technical components of it? How did you kind of draw that conclusion, essentially? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's a lot of research. But at the end of the day, it, it's kind of simple to figure out whether or not a token has value or not. Uh, when a token may or may not or when a token may have value, that when it gets that's when it gets a little complicated for us. And that's where we shine. Like we did reports on Loom and Engine where we have detailed uh, token economic models, along with Ethereum, which is public as well. But for Stellar in particular, uh, you know, we started at the basis. You know, what is Stellar being used for? Uh, my two cents going in was, you know, this is a philanthropic uh, token that's going to be given away to the world, basically, so that everyone can have a bank account. Uh, they're changing their message a little bit to, you know, more tokenizing assets and fiat. But you know, there's just so many things that stand out about the token not accruing value. It's just it's just so obvious. Um, you know, the first one is the foundation is giving away like 90% of the XLM. That's a constant sell pressure. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other one is there's no reason to hold the token after you're done transacting with it. Uh, the other one is that the account balances for XLM to open account and have a minimum is so low that there'll be no reason for a significant portion to be locked up, uh, over time. So, you know, there's a lot of good things with it. Uh, you know, it could be the, you know, financial infrastructure that connects the whole world. But does that mean that the token is going to accrue value? Um, absolutely not. No. 
So you had mentioned one other token or project before Engine and, and Loom 2, but looking into Engine, I think it's it's kind of an interesting example because that was a, a token that performed extremely well in Q1. I, I believe it was Q1 or maybe in April too, or it's up like 300%, uh, maybe plus against Bitcoin. And a lot of that was on the back of the announcement that you know they were kind of included within the Samsung, I guess, S10 or the kind of some aspect of the Galaxy phone as as like a research firm how do you look at whether or not certain aspects of like news events are like is that something that you take into consideration how do you maybe differentiate between the the types of of news or kind of announcements that like quote unquote pump a cryptocurrency versus things that may actually have substance and help accrue value to token holders yeah that's a great question i mean so when we're building a report, you know, we don't assume that, you know, positive or negative news will come out. Uh, news is not always positive. Uh, for Engine, it was great that, you know, we had our report out before that announcement, uh, but we had no idea that was coming out. So our report didn't include that. But we tend to not make expectations on on what news flow or partnerships will be. Uh, but we do discuss about a lot about the fundamental reasons or impacts of what existing partnerships will have. Um, on the existing token. So for Engine in particular, uh, you know, that was that was a detailed report. That was one of our best. Um, I wasn't the lead analyst on it. It's the benefit of having, you know, a large team that we could all focus on uh, sharing the research. But, you know, the value drivers for Engine were pretty simple. Uh, I mean, it just depended on the number of game developers uh, backing their in-game items with Engine um, and just focusing on not developing one product, but an entire, you know, gaming ecosystem. So that kind of goes well more into you know just a one-off news release or anything like that one of the things with engine in particular uh you know as you mentioned you conducted some research on that I believe at the time of of recording this at least at the time of our conversation right now engine is maybe a little bit over a hundred million dollar market cap uh coin when you look at institutional let's say maybe larger investment interest in digital assets is it primarily just Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum, or does it extend all the way down to sizes like Engine Coin, which are you know only maybe a hundred million dollars or so in terms of of liquid market cap? Yeah, well, it's a great question. So a lot of the focus is on Bitcoin, Ethereum. You know, take your pick on a large asset, just because they're the largest. There's liquidity, uh, easy to understand. People are interested for the most part. But when you're a hedge fund or a trader or an analyst. You know, they're, most of them aren't looking to get sold into an ideology or follow a religion. These guys are here to make a trade, make money, uh, and get out. So if we could find sub-50 million or sub-100 market cap coins, um, and we could provide, you know, great analysis on that that's actionable, people will jump all over it. Uh, so, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, while Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others are great, uh, people want, you know, outsized returns even on top of that. They want a beta at 1.5 or higher. Uh and they want to make outsized returns there. And to that point of the institutional investors, I think you had just released a piece recently that covered some different theses around uh, how you know institutions might be looking at digital assets. What emerging trends do you see from the larger investors in the space right now? Is there any that stick out to you as far as like, whether it's growing interest or specific theses that they're looking at, or like you said, are they simply just looking for outsized returns regardless of uh, you know, ideology or anything like that? 
Yeah. Do you mean like crypto funds in general or, or just broader institutions and legacy or? So let's, let's take it maybe to broader institutions and legacy, because I think, yeah, I think that might be somewhere where maybe the crypto funds, I feel like it's, you know, we kind of hear from them all the time, at least for, for, for me, I feel like the crypto yeah. funds are very vocal in terms of what their theses are and, and why they're making those investments, because that's almost like the marketing aspect to me, at least. I think there's a lot less visibility into what like the, you know, traditional entrenched players are doing or thinking. And I would love to hear if there, you know, if there's anything maybe that, that you hear that you see as like an emerging trend from the, the traditional players. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, you know, on the grounds trends that I see every day is the conversations we're having with institutions, uh, you know, existing large banks that aren't in crypto or are in crypto. The conversations are changing a lot. Uh, so like a year ago or two years ago, it was, you know, what's Bitcoin? This is a joke, uh, you know, whatever. And now when you sit down across some people at major banks, they're like, wow, what's the impact of, you know, JPM coin? Um, how can we get involved? What's the status of custody solutions? Uh, when is an ETF or futures? You know, what's the status of all these things? So the conversations are changing a lot from big banks thinking this is a joke to thinking it's real. And I know people, you know, you probably hear that a lot, but sitting across from people and just seeing the level of questions just increase in complexity, uh, I always see that as a good trend. But overall, uh, you know, the story on Bitcoin is easy to sell to an institution. Um, uncorrelated returns on something that can't be changed and it's digital. Um, it's just an easy sell and it's easy to explain. Is JP Morgan coin, is that one of the events in which I, I kind of get the impression that while a lot of people brushed it off, that turned a lot of people in the traditional finance world to kind of turn their heads and say, hey, what's happening here? What's what's going on with this cryptocurrency space again? Did you get that impression as well or? Uh, I mean, at first I took it as a, you know, at first I took it as, you know, what's the point of XRP anymore, uh, even though there was no point to begin with. But, you know, now there's even less of a point with JPM coin. But I, I think the real thing is that, uh, a lot of people will say, you know, oh, this is a press release. Oh, JP Morgan wants to be involved. But, you know, there's a big shift from where they were two or three years ago. Um, and having JPM coin in place allows them to scale it up to, you know, JP Morgan was a lot of money around the world every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it could be a big deal. And and to what you had just said, you know, I, I was of the opinion and I still am of the opinion that it is highly competitive uh, to what Ripple and XRP are building. And I think, JP Morgan is probably better positioned to actually execute on that vision. Um, what are your thoughts on, I guess, that the competition specifically there between something like JPM coin or maybe the entrenched banking players versus what Ripple uh, is building and, and how that translates to uh, XRP's kind of utilization? Because we all know that XRP was was specifically gifted to Ripple and they have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that Ripple has a lot of money through XRP. So they're able to execute on partnerships, uh, you know, and hire a huge sales force to do that. And they have been successful in launching a lot of partnerships. But, you know, the final mile there, they haven't been able to deliver, uh, probably because it's just not worth it. But it's worth keeping in mind that Ripple is also in the crypto echo, echo chamber here, right? Mm -hmm. So major institutions like JP Morgan have relationships with not only customers, but institutions that, you know, dwarf Ripple orders of magnitude. You know, they're they're a massive existing banking player. Ripple's a tech startup. 
with a lot of XRP that has no reason for retail holders to hold it, and they're pumping it. So I think it's worth keeping in mind that crypto, the crypto echo chamber should not discount how powerful existing institutions can be when they get involved with crypto. Um, if JPM coin is to take off or to drive an ecosystem around it, uh, that could be really powerful. Um, they have a ton of clients, ton of institutions, and obviously, uh, you know, a zillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of somebody else who has a zillion dollars, who is also a traditional player, but not in the, the finance space, Facebook, uh, they had their, I think it was F8 the other day. And then also the additional news came out about, I think it's Project Libra or whatever they're calling their, their Facebook coin, Zuckbucks, whatever it might be. Do you feel like that, if that is executed on, is that something that is a value add to the cryptocurrency space as a whole? What, where are your kind of thoughts on, on Facebook coin? Yeah, I mean, I personally think Facebook coin could be huge. Um, I think it's more to build out and protect Facebook's ecosystem moat potentially be more competitive with peers, whether it be on advertising or user lock-in or things like that, then their focus on crypto. I, I don't think they're really too interested in, in crypto, to be honest. But yeah. the point is, Facebook has the UX solved on a global level with billions of users. So if I'm able to send money through Facebook Messenger to somebody else, that's massive. Uh, but I also think it could be a huge uh, Bitcoin and crypto on-ramp because if we could educate, you know, a billion people with one update or two billion people with one Facebook update on crypto or Facebook coin, um, that does a lot for, you know, the next mile where these people move Facebook coin, say, into Bitcoin or crypto and then become, you know, hopefully Web3 native if it's built out by them. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And one thing from the standpoint, at least I think that's been interesting now is the additional entrenched players in the finance space that have been getting into the crypto world. You have like Fidelity and you have uh, ICE through Backed and some of these other players as well. And there was research that came out yesterday. I'd be interested just to hear your thoughts on it. So it was Fidelity Investments put out this like survey report where they said seven out of 10 respondents found you know, some aspect of digital assets attractive. And then, you know, 40, I think it was 47% said the digital assets were innovative technology and 46% said that they thought the most appealing aspect was, like you said before, kind of a, a low correlation to other aspect or a low correlation to other assets was the most appealing characteristic. Um, and seems like a lot of these institutional investors prefer or not necessarily prefer, but have some level of, of interest in digital assets. Is that something that just from your conversations in the past that you would agree with at, as a whole? Um, to be honest, the stats seem a little high. Um, so that's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, they, uh, they seem a little high to me. It's, I, I guess there's fidelity does great work. Uh, fidelity has been involved, I think since 2014 mining and, and, you know, they have hundreds of people building out their solutions there. So nothing bad to say about fidelity. I think they're progressive, but the survey just, the numbers seem a little bit too high. I, I mean, I don't even know if I would be able to, to get those polling numbers if I went to 10 random funds. Uh, <laughs> that's it's. It's interesting too, because I think, you know, it, it speaks to what they want it to speak to. So I'm sure there's, there, you know, might be some selective bias there, but when, yeah. you know, when you do think about the correlation of, of digital assets to other assets per se, I think there is a big argument now because or there, there kind of has been a, an argument of, of what will happen to, to Bitcoin and 
other crypto assets because i do think there's still you know a very high degree of correlation there what will happen to bitcoin if the you know global equities market actually takes a turn for the worse which it really hasn't done in, in quite some time really since for the entire existence history of bitcoin since like 2009 what what's your team's thoughts on that and what is the impression that you get from other people about the actual you know potential correlation there of you know, bitcoin to the global equities market yeah, it's a great question. My partner, Kevin, every time I see him, he always says, uh, you know, Bitcoin's a risk on asset. And I laugh, but it, I mean, it's true, but it's just like his tagline at this point. Uh, he wrote a great institutional post about this. But net, I think um, if we were, were to go into a recession, um, I don't think Bitcoin would would fare well in the short term. Uh, you know, as people are trying to pay their bills and, you know, eat, I don't think that they're going to be investing money in magical Internet money when they need, uh, you know, food on the table. But Long term, I think that uh, global issues are great for crypto because the next turnaround, people are going to say, you know, we just went through this huge issue or this major meltdown or this problem, or I don't trust my government because I've actually seen it in practice. I haven't just heard about it because uh, I think a lot of people in crypto didn't really live through 08 uh, or 09 with, you know, money or responsibilities. I, I know older people have, but younger uh, kind of haven't. So I think once we go through that, people are going to say on the next turnaround, wow, you know, maybe I should allocate a percentage of my savings to something that my government can't touch or that the central bank can't change. Um, and I think that's a powerful long term uh, driver for crypto on a macro level. And on a macro level, when you look at what drives adoption additionally, I think there is a there's kind of a, a big debate and it's at least my personal opinion that there isn't really solid evidence one way or another right now of like what is going to bring the next level of adoption and if you look at 2017 i wouldn't necessarily call that adoption a lot of that was was spec just kind of like industry-wide speculation and it i think it helped to bring a lot of talent into the industry um and help to people you know kind of help to, to bring people to actually build out legitimate infrastructure and and try to develop solutions that people might need but do you personally have any thoughts on what might usher in like that next larger wave of individuals into like the digital assets ecosystem? Is that something like you said, where it is some type of, of kind of macro level financial, uh, you know, financial slowdown where people eventually start putting assets into Bitcoin or is it something, you know, else Facebook coin? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think it could be either tech focused or financial focused. So tech focused, maybe it'll be a killer app or another use case. Uh, maybe it's Lightning taking off. Maybe it's MakerDAO building out DeFi with their partners on the tech side, or maybe it's Facebook coin. On the macro level, maybe it's a country meltdown or a recession or uh, people that are on a global basis that can use on-ramps to actually buy crypto. Uh, Stellar could be a great Bitcoin on-ramp for the developed world in a sense. Um, but the point is that I don't think it really matters what it is because I view us in kind of like this mega high growth Petri dish um, of technological revolution. And I think that something will come out of it. And I don't think you'll be able to find a higher growth tech area anywhere. Uh, so I think people should, you know, take a step back and just look at, you know, the thousands of teams building on this, the institutions on a tech level and then on a macro level and say, you know, is this something that I really don't want to be a part of? And it's hard to say no to that. For sure. Somebody who spends 
a good amount of your time, I'm sure, you know, diving into research, whether, like you said before, white papers, yellow papers, uh, you know, speaking to different sources, things like that. If I am just regular Rob at home, uh, you know, somebody watching right now, and I want to do my own research on a cryptocurrency or a project, whatever it might be, what types of steps would you recommend an individual take to conduct that research? Is there any best practices that you have? Yeah, I, I mean, I would start uh, conceptually with the idea that uh, don't go in with any opinions or expectations, uh, because a lot of what's written by teams, a lot of what's on, uh, well, a lot of what's written by teams is like hopium or wrong or overly positive. Uh, a lot of that's what's on the message boards is being shilled by people left and right. Uh, Twitter has some really smart people on it, but the majority are, are pumping bags left and right. Uh, not as bad in the bear market, which is good, but you know, that's the point. The other thing is uh, I would focus on project specific sources first, compile as much data as you can, throw it on a Word doc, get 10 pages of data, whatever, and then start over and go with people's opinions on it. You know, read blogs of, about other people that have written on the topic and just compare and contrast and form your own views. Uh, and the best thing you could do is to have your own opinion, uh, regardless of what people say on Twitter or LinkedIn, whatever, because uh, nobody wants to follow a robot or somebody preaching someone else's bags. People want other people with opinions. Um, even if you're wrong, that's fine. You'll learn more that way anyway. What would you say would be right now one of your, I want to say unpopular opinion, but like more controversial opinion, something that you think is, I would say maybe the, the vast amount of, of crypto Twitter believes in, but you think is, is totally wrong because you have researched it and come to XYZ conclusion? Yeah, um, I'd probably flip the question around on on what's something that I like that I don't think a large majority of people like. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, easier segue, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of of what Tezos is doing. Uh, I'm very aware that there's a slim chance that they succeed because you not only have to argue that smart contracts at a high level are worth it, you also have to argue that they'll be able to beat Ethereum and their competitors. Uh, I do think the chances are slim. I do think it's an amazing hedge on Ethereum and it could be an outsized return. Uh, you know, there's issues there, especially with their programming languages. It's just too hard to develop on, but they have, you know, five to 10 or probably around five, maybe not 10 different solutions they're working on, like SmartPie and Marigold and things like that to make it easier to work on the platform. Um, that just opens up the developer ecosystem. So, you know, I'm a sucker for finding a, a gem in the rough. And I think that that could be a potential outsized return. But uh, as always, do your own research and it's not advice. <laughs> As a as a proud Tezos bag holder currently, I I enjoy I enjoy you you know I enjoy the confirmation bias here. I think that I'd probably just go out and two x my bags right now, Tezos, and just start baking them. Um, so I I, I appreciate that. It's, it's I'll helpful. go buy some more. <laughs> yeah, always. It's that's, uh, it's, that's hey, it's not financial advice from you. It's financial advice for me. <laughs> I'll shift it to you. Easier. Yes. Yeah. There. There we are. I'll I'll take blame for everything. That's that's funny. Um. And I would say, you know, when you are looking at the frequency of research, how often do things change? Because I do feel like this this industry moves so damn fast. And even like the thesis is that that investors have like 2017 was we've gone from even when we look at like, let's say Ethereum, like it was the decentralized world computer. It was dApps. Now it's you know, DeFi, decentralized finance, open finance, whatever people want to whatever people want to call it. 
And I feel like the, the reasons and the justifications for holding certain cryptocurrencies changes. You know, some projects have gone from payment fees to governance and like it evolves so quickly. How do you keep pace with the, the fast moving nature of, of the industry and kind of allow your research to keep pace with that as well? It's a great question. It's hard. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think it's one thing worth stepping back is I don't think there's an issue with narratives changing as long as they're proactive. Um, you know, the Internet started as communication for scientists. Right. And now we have all the way up to, you know, we had email, then static web pages or whatever the order is. And then now we have Facebook. But the point is that the narrative for the Internet changed over time as it grew and the technology improved. So I don't think there's anything wrong with, say, the narrative for uh, different cryptocurrencies changing. Uh, you know, if you want Bitcoin to be a medium of exchange, that's fine. But I think it's now a store of value. Um, and I think that's fine. Uh, Ethereum was, you know, take your pick on what it was for smart contracts or the open financial system. But now it's powering DeFi. Uh, I think that's fine. Uh, but there's other narratives that uh, like Tron, uh, XRP, stellar like questionable narrative changes on whether or not they could be successful. Uh, so I think it's worth, you know, taking a view of uh, if a narrative changes, make sure it's the narrative that changes forward and not backward, because there's no point in justifying a, a narrative if it's not going to be successful. When you look at what's happened recently with, I don't want to say like, I wouldn't say like regulatory uncertainty in some respects, but it seems like there is, there's always been a lot of, of like risk, I, I think inherent risk in the crypto markets. Just, you know, there's not a ton of regulatory clarity. There's seems like now with the Bitfinex tether type of situation, there's potentially some legal risk. Um, you know, there's a lot of jurisdictional risk, things like that across the board. Like how do you evaluate that as a researcher? Like, let's say you're looking at Binance coin, BNB, and I think, you know, certain people have think it's like multi-coin capital had, you know, big thesis on, on a lot of the, the details and why they're, you know, very bullish long-term on a Binance coin. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people that are you know, claiming it is the most obvious illegal security, you know, unregistered security on the planet and all types of, you know, things like that. How do you look at the way whether it's, you know, the law is structured or their, you know, jurisdictional risk, how do you take that into account when you do your, your research? Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, we approach this with the, with the concept that the legal laws or the laws around all of this can change at any second and they're currently not in stone. Um, and that's a huge risk for the whole industry. So that's what we start as BNB is an interesting one, uh, working on a report now on it. So stay tuned, uh, no views one way or the other yet. Uh, but I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, they changed their headquarters five times. Now they're in Malta. Uh, nobody knows where their servers are. They have IP all over the world. Like, you know, I don't even know how a country or a jurisdiction would even enforce a change against them. Um, so that's something like to keep aware of, but you know, there are honeypots that governments could attack if they really wanted to start messing with these things. Uh, do I think a government could take down Bitcoin? Uh, probably not. I don't think so, but if a government took down Coinbase, uh, that would have a huge impact on the price of Bitcoin, I think. Um, I'm not sure whether it would go one way or another. Uh, but the point is that I think people have to be aware that, you know, we can't live in an anarchist type view forever. Uh, we need the government to get involved and put out clear regulations to take care of a lot of the shady stuff going on. Uh, nobody wants to lose their money on ICOs. 
Uh, nobody wants to deal with pump and dump schemes. Uh, nobody wants, you know, people want regulatory clarity. Um, and I personally don't think uh, the U.S. is going to come down negative on crypto at a high level, just because I don't think they're going to cede uh, potentially the greatest technology in our lifetime to another country. Totally. Yeah, that's I, I think I'm in agreement on that as well. So it's been interesting to watch like the regulatory landscape unfold. As a last question here, what is one thing that you're watching, I guess, most intently in the next six months in the industry? I'm watching the developers uh, every day. Uh, when Amin fought with Lane on Twitter, uh, I didn't care about their argument. I was wondering where Lane was going and if he was staying with Ethereum. Uh, I follow the developers as closely as I possibly can. When I spoke about Tezos before, make their languages easier. Uh, I follow that because I want to know if it's easy enough that developers will switch or once ETH 2.0 comes out, if these developers are going to rewrite their contracts for Ethereum. Uh, developers, in my mind, are the absolute lifeblood of not only mutating and evolving the protocols, but in building the applications and use cases on top of them. Uh, and you need developers, uh, even on Bitcoin. Bitcoin has Lightning Labs and Blockstream. Take your pick. Uh, this is for every protocol here, and people need to follow them closely. Really good point. Um, and maybe I said last question, but I'm going to ask one more question based upon that. How would you recommend an individual follow the developers? Are you talking about Twitter, GitHub, or there you know certain areas or recommendations where you actually keep track of these developers on a continuous basis? I, I wish there was an easy metric here. I really <laughs> do. But, uh, you know that gives that gives me a job, right? But yeah. you know, one of the cool things I guess you could watch is you know take the top five, 10, 20 projects or teams building on a platform and see where they go over the next year. If they stay somewhere, that's great. If they leave, maybe you should start uh, looking at the project that they're going to. Um, you know, follow MakerDAO. You know, MakerDAO's on Ethereum. If MakerDAO were to ever switch to another platform or protocol, that would be bad. Awesome. Well, bad for Ethereum, good for the project that you're uh, potentially going into. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes makes a bit of sense. Hopefully, I mean, MakerDAO seems like a pretty big part of the Ethereum ecosystem right now, so that might be a might might be a rough move they ever did leave. But oh yeah, no, I I, I know, to be I honest, know. I doubt they'll leave, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> Just an example. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the time. If anybody is looking to find you and Delphi Digital, where could they go about doing so? Yep, I'm on Twitter at Shaughnessy119. I know that's hard to spell, so I guess it's just guess it. If you're watching the video, you can see it above on the podcast. I'll put a link in the podcast for you guys. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Bobby. And uh, Delphi is just DelphiDigital.io. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it, and uh, hope you have a good one, everybody.